The Mind Sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. J. Galen Buckwalter, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along and how they spoke. Tune in soon. Our heart sponsor for today is Decoding Success. Decoding Success enables you to get a feel for the personality of the people with whom you are interacting passively, without alerting the party that you are doing it, such as would happen typically when a questionnaire is used, the only other means to capture the analyzable data. Using text from emails, messages, or a Twitter account, Decoding Success can optimize your chances for a successful encounter by prepping you ahead of time. Want to know about that entrepreneur in whose company you are contemplating an investment prior to the pitch meeting? Want to screen which candidates will be best suited to join your team before you even meet them? Visit D-E-C-O-D-I-N-G-S-U-C-C-E-S-S dot com. On this episode, we have Amy Copeland. Amy was born and raised in New York and developed an interest in the world of television production. She studied at Boston University and started working for ABC after graduating. Over her extensive career there, she would become a founding producer of the Good Morning America show, eventually spending nine years with it. After a few other roles with ABC, she departed to start her own company. She now runs Bedlam Entertainment, a media training, presentation coaching, and conference strategy company whose clients include CEOs and senior leaders. She is also co-author of the book, I Didn't See It Coming. Amy, thank you so much for being on our show. It is such a pleasure to be with you, Essim. Um... I love having these conversations and inviting so many people to be part of our stories. So many people are going to be inspired by your story because uh, I'm, I'm privy to it. And I must say that uh, I've really cherished our burgeoning friendship and being able to collaborate with you on, on Robin. And I have to say you're, you're the, the best kind of friend because you see the best in people and you always push them to get to that level. Well, I, I've heard that. I'm, I'm deeply touched and honored by that. Um, I, for the longest time, and, and we'll get to this, of course, um, was producing a lot of events in my career. And I got into an elevator um, at Ernst & Young, um, and some woman walked in and said to me, I just left a conference, and let me assure you, it was not an Amy Copeland conference. So I realized that a lot of what I do and what I produce and what I um, ask people to do or where I set the bar has resonated and people are aware when they're in an experience that doesn't meet that level. Fantastic. Well, in the course of the next several minutes, we are going to learn what an Amy Copeland experience is about. Well, how fun is that? <laughs> a lot, a lot, especially for me. Um, Amy, I like to start from the beginning. So I believe if memory serves, your story begins in New Jersey, where you were born and raised. Uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey. And I never, interestingly enough, I seen thought of myself as a New Jersey girl. And the reason is my parents uh, were both brought up in New York. And whereas a lot of my friends would play in New Jersey or go to events in New Jersey or um, do Jersey things, I was always in New York. Um, that's where my parents would shop or visit or things would happen in our lives. So uh, yes, I guess technically I'm a New Jersey girl, but I had such a New York and metropolitan experience growing up and I think in a way that served me well, because it set, um, let's just say, certain expectations and certain mm -hmm. ideas of what kind of lifestyle or what kind of social and um, intellectual engagement I was looking for. Nice. That's brilliant. Tell us a little bit about your parents. Were they in the entertainment broadcasting space? No, not, not, not at all, uh, which mm -hmm. is really, really interesting. My father um, was a, a chemical engineer by trade okay. and had um, done a lot of work with DuPont and then went out on his own. And in fact, um, had the, I guess, badge 
uh, of being the person who created porous Teflon. So he was oh, um, wow. very, very much in the um, chemical and engineering side of life. And I, I probably, without recognizing it, digested a lot of that linear thinking and a mm. lot of that processing and a lot of uh, the way of looking at the world and analyzing things. Um, and I think as uh, I kept growing and eventually got into school, I could find myself thinking about things a lot the way he might think about something. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and you know, wonderful at that. Uh, so maybe some of my baking and cooking comes from having a mom who knew how to bake and cook. <laughs> Well, certainly your nurturing qualities, um, there seems to be a lineage there because you bring that to uh, every relationship you have, not just your family. Well, it sort of comes through the DNA, I guess. Um, yeah. I think my, my dad had a lot of what is now known as EQ. And oh, I would say that I probably through the DNA channel picked that up as well. Brilliant, absolutely. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a brother who is five years younger Although when we are out working together and we do work together or out socially, um, we always tease that um, I'm the younger sister. So it's just <laughs> sort of a family thing. I, um, I'm very close with my brother and he ended up going into the same realm of work that I did. And mm -hmm. when I was um, at ABC television, I had the opportunity to bring him into a lot Wonderful. of the work I was doing. And you know, if we skip way ahead, um, he and I each have our own independent companies now, but we tend to tap into each other for uh, each That's other's great. skill set and expertise. So a lot of projects we do now, we do together. Wonderful. It's so great to hear. Um, what was it like growing up? What, what were the things that you did for fun, Amy? Oh, for fun. Oh, my goodness. Um, again, if you keep in mind that I had a New York City orientation, um, I really, really was into dance. Uh, I okay. loved tap and I loved ballet. And in, in the New Jersey environment, uh, there were lots of fun little classes that I could go to. But I think my mom recognized very soon along, uh, probably junior high school, when I was in junior high school, that there were probably more advanced classes that I would be interested mm -hmm. in. And so very, very early in junior high school, I would uh, go into the city with my mom and eventually I would just go on the bus by myself and oh. had just the joy of taking tap, jazz and ballet uh, mm. with Broadway performers. There oh, were amazing. Time, uh, yeah, it was amazing, Asim. Um, there were classes that were given in what would look like a fire trap and you'd go up <laughs> to the third or fourth floor. It reminds me of some of the uh, lyrics from Chorus Line. But you would, in fact, go up to the third or the fourth floor of what you felt, oh, my God, I hope I get up there alive. And there would be musicians and drummers and dancers. And I got a lot of my dance training that way, which, which was remarkable. Because then when I was in high school, it was really obvious to me that there was a little bit of a chasm and that I had jumped way ahead in my perhaps dance and artistic ability. There was um, a place called uh, Luigi's Jazz Center. And, you know, some people listening to you and me may say, oh, right, I remember <laughs> Luigi's Jazz Center. Uh, and I took jazz classes from the master, from Luigi. It, it was just an amazing experience. So a lot of what I did was in that realm. And I think the connection to theater and television is my dad was an, uh, you know, like a movie buff. And so at all hours of Sundays, Saturdays, weekends, time, and even nighttime, uh, I would always curl up in a big club chair with my dad and watch movies. And there was something about that process that really engaged me, talked to me. Yeah, uh, I used yeah. to love it. I used to really, really embrace it. That was a special time. That's great. I have to also imagine that um, learning about, as a dancer, learning about presence and performance and how to connect and emotionally bond with an audience. I mean, those are key attributes that you've brought to bear in your career. Where that For sure, was, the foundation was... absolutely is there. Yeah. I mean, when you're learning yeah. to dance, it's way more than, you know, step one and two and three and four. You're, you're worrying about what is that audience thinking of me? How am I yeah. seducing them? How am I engaging absolutely. them? And 
had I want to be, had I, let's say, if I had decided, oh, I'm going to be a professional dancer, which I didn't want to do, um, they really need to concentrate on that because their goal is to be in the front line. They don't, Absolutely. if they're going to be a professional dancer, want to be in row three. That's so right. how yeah, you absolutely. talk to that audience through your body language and your smile exactly. and your eyes, it's very critical to dance training. Yeah. And that's the uniqueness of it. I love the way you just framed that. You're talking to the audience with movement and your body. You're yeah, not absolutely. speaking. And you yeah. know, yeah. because you and I've spoken so much, it's so much of what I watch for now when I'm training yeah. anybody. Uh, yeah. One of the lines is, there's the camera, seduce the lens. Um, yeah. People are sometimes thrown by that, but there is a way that your head and your body and your voice have to embrace the camera. Absolutely. Amy, was there an aha moment while you were growing up, maybe some of these experiences where you said, you know what, broadcasting, this is what I want to go into? I think there, the aha that I would love to tell you about will come later, and, and that will be the aha about um, why I needed to be an entrepreneur and not a corporate baby. Um, oh, okay. But that said, I spent 20 years being a corporate baby. Um, it took a long time for the aha to come and maybe it was okay. brewing or sort of simmering uh, on the stove for a right. long time. Uh, what I knew watching all these movies all the time, mm. it was a sense of, I could make one of those movies or okay, I'd like nice. to write one of those movies. And I nice. think as I matured, uh, there was this reference to me, and, and you may laugh, it's okay. Um, my name is Amy Dorn Copeland. Dorn is my maiden name. And the reference was Mama Dorn. And it wasn't a reference to being old. It was a right. reference to orchestrating. Right. So when there would be birthday parties or events or whatever, someone would say, well, let's grab Mama Dorn. She'll set it up. She'll have a party for her. She'll have games we're playing. She'll tell people where to march and where to stand. So I knew early in the game that I had that, let's call it talent, skill set, ability, but more than anything, the pleasure of that. I wow. liked being in that role. Yeah. So as I would watch these movies, not only would I say, I could write that movie, or I because I had that <laughs> sense of, I could produce that movie. Right. I could bring people together and actually create that and it wasn't a chore it was something that felt like a very natural part of who I was that's so great it brought you joy and you discovered it early on and kudos to your dad to calling that out of you or cultivating it even that oh, sure. storytelling nature that you that is inherent to you so uh, you opted to study in Boston tell us about that I opted to study at UCLA which didn't happen so oh, okay. I, I, I will correct the narrative. Um, yeah, I, when I was a, a junior in high school, I mm. went and spent three weeks with a friend who lived in California and obviously um, LA uh, for this story. And they were right near the UCLA campus. And boy, did I fall in love. And so when I uh, applied for college, I applied to UCLA and I also applied to the communication school in Boston. And there was a real bias uh, to mm -hmm. East Coast, West Coast at that time. So I was put on the wait list at UCLA. Okay. And I was proud of that. I mean, there was a chance I would get in. Uh, but I was accepted right away in Boston. And at a certain okay. point, my father said, um, there's no money to burn here. We're hit a deadline. You have to say yes or no to Boston. Mm. I'm not going to give them a deposit and then have you renege. So Right. I thought, okay, I'll do the Boston thing. I'll be closer to home and I'll just visit on the campus of UCLA. So that was the choice. And I pursued a degree in broadcasting and film, which was lovely. And I guess being in Boston, it allowed me to do some uh, internship work at WGBH, which was the local oh, yeah. station there. And it also gave me access to come back uh, and do some, uh, let's say, visiting uh, at my local WABC station in New York. Uh, so I think that, that created the connection. Wonderful, oh, that's great. Um, and so tell us about your first job out of college. Well, the first job out of college was actually in college. And mm, okay. what happened was that um, it was really clear when I was a junior in college that we all needed internships. 
And so you scurry. I think mm. students are doing it now. You scurry to say, who do I know? Who's in my network? Who's in my sphere? Who's in my cosmos? Quick, mom, dad, who do we know? That, 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 that. And, and it, my father ended up knowing because of the chemical engineering side of, of life, some of the engineers that had worked in television in New York. Right. And one of them, purely coincidentally, and luckily for me, had been an engineer at ABC. And uh, he called my father back and he said, yeah, I, I am still working here now. I understand that um, to date, there have only been men on the ground. But if your daughter wants to come in and interview, I do believe they're going to take summer internships uh, into engineering, but it'll be for the first time ever. And probably what she'll have to do is be able to pick up a two hour uh, made for television movie on reels. At the time we were on heavy tape reels right. and physically be able to do the job. Mm. Um, so this is my girl story. And, and this is my <laughs> psych out the audience story. So my nice. father said, you actually can set this interview up and this fellow will make the arrangements for you. And he did. And I decided that instead of going in in my, let's say, overalls and sweatshirt and showing that I had brawn and that I could pick up these tapes, I would play the opposite card. Ooh. And it was to say, who am I? Do I have enough faith in my skill set, my mental ability, my ability to step in the right direction and control the narrative? And I thought, you know, I do. I do. So instead, I wore a really tight white skirt and <laughs> I wore an orange frilly blouse wow. and I wore white high heels okay. and I went in for my interview. And Fantastic. Some people have said, oh, that was a really, really gender-based decision, and maybe you shouldn't have done that. You were selling yourself out. And my thought was, no, 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 not at all. Exactly. The boys had a network. That's Girls right. needed a network. And I wanted to play whatever card and attribute I had to get the job. And exactly. so I thought walking in is a more attractive, fun I want to be around this girl sort of impression would help. And in That's fact, as luck would have it, the fellow doing the interview was quite, I guess, enamored with that. <laughs> and um, they asked me a few questions and I talked about my background in television and my work in Boston. And then of course they did say, do you think you could pick up that reel of tape that's sitting on mm. the desk? And a theme I did. I Wonderful. was committed to it. I picked it up. I put it on the Ampex 2000 machine. And they said to me, great, um, we're starting summer internships in two weeks. We'll see you then. Uh, it was an interesting, really interesting internship in that all interns worked midnight till seven in the morning. Oh, wow. So I had to change my schedule yeah. and learn to be in a different sleep cycle but it was a fabulous experience. And I went back to Boston for senior year, knowing that when I graduated, I had a job um, in the engineering department at ABC. There was way less angst about where was I going to end up. Yeah. Oh, that's superb. Fantastic. So you graduate and you rejoin the engineering department, but you transitioned from there after a period of time. So talk with us about that. I did join the engineering department and it was an unpredictable circumstance, but one that was life-changing in that when I started to work at ABC for real in the engineering department, it was uh, right at the top of the Munich Olympics. And oh, I yeah. was assigned to one of the sports editing groups. Okay. And if you'll recall, Munich Olympics, yeah. uh, first time ever there were shooters on the roof. Exactly. And they came to us, uh, the, the I guess management uh, in the tape room at the time, because I was in videotape, to say, we're looking for people that won't go home. We're looking for people and engineers and editors that are willing to just stay it out. We'll bring you pizza. You can shower in you know, the locker rooms. Um, but we need people who are going to record and stay with this. This has never happened before. And I saw it as an opportunity, a scene. 
yeah, I thought I, I'm not racing home for something. They'll feed me pizza. Um, you know, if my jeans get dirty and my, my t-shirt gets grimy, who cares? I'm doing exactly. amazing work with yeah. an amazing opportunity. And um, I'm sure many of your listeners will know that at that time, Rune Arledge ran the sports division right. and he made a unilateral decision that the network would not go to commercial grade. Wow. It was the first time ever that that decision was made. So not only did we record 24-7, edit clips, and send them back out, we did not go to commercial break. And we not only didn't do that, he made the decision then to not go to station break. So you now were affecting the financials because exactly. the stations were not cutting in for their local inserts. Right. It was a pivotal and remarkable time in live television. And yeah. so I stayed in engineering and actually loved that experience. I learned a phenomenal amount from it. I became really tight with the team that was there, all of whom eventually went on to be president of divisions and to wow. create amazing work in television. And I didn't end up staying in the sports group. I opted to move to the news group and became a news junkie producer editor and then i was assigned to the democratic conventions and republican conventions and literally was on the floor of all the conventions um recording editing creating wow. clips and i stayed in the engineering department because it allowed me to morph into being a producer and uh, it became really clear that that's where i could better serve the network yeah. And eventually they asked me to start training other people on editing. And it, um, it opened up a world of connection and opportunity. Um, and as you look back into TV lore, if you will, um, Barbara Walters then came to the network mm, and right. they asked me to be her editor. And oh, so wow. I got what an experience work with Barbara, um, there were other people along the way. I was assigned to the uh, Harry Reasoner, Howard K. Smith show. Uh, I worked many of the, let's say, legendaries, even though I was as young as could be. And they would often look at me and say, she's our editor. And um, I remember one of the producers saying, yes, because she's smart. And wow. it was, you know, it was a tap of recognition. Um, yeah. And uh Yes. So I ended up staying in engineering until there was a strike. Um, and I, I actually never thought about the fact that I was actually on strike all of a sudden. <laughs> was on strike. And um, it was the first time someone ever put a placard around my neck that uh -oh. the name of our engineering group and said on strike. And I thought, Oh, no, 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 this is, this is time to break rank and good wow. or bad. Um, I left engineering at that point in time and okay. um, decided to go on to the management side. Okay. Um, so did you leave the Barbara Walters show at that point? There was no Barbara Walters show at that point. Remember oh, she, right. That's right. She was, uh, that's okay. she and Harry Reasoner were sharing the platform. So yes, I left uh, that. Gotcha. She went on eventually. I'm so filled with wonderful stories. She went on eventually to have the Barbara Walters show. Right. I hired her producer, Bill Getty. Um, and that was a joy. I also hired her hairdresser, um, which, you know, <laughs> stories galore. Uh, but yes, I had um, gone on to the management side prior to Barbara having her own show. Gotcha. Okay. So tell us about that transition. Which projects, platforms were you able to work on on the management side? Well, keep in mind then that that opened up um, 20 years at the network. And right. it's an interesting question, Asim, because at that point, I was well aware that I had marketing and entrepreneurial genes, mm. that I was not really a corporate baby. And right. the reason I knew that is that I found myself losing patience for what seemed to be more of a corporate mentality. Yeah, and, and, and one of the, I guess, stunning examples of that was in uh, engineering, 
when you were inserting commercials into a movie, say, as an example, you were told that you would, in essence, um, and I'll make up the numbers now for the argument of the story, you'll edit seven commercials in per hour. And that was the engineering mojo. When it became really obvious to me that I could put seven commercials in in 10 minutes. Mm. I didn't need an hour. And uh, what I started to recognize is that there were rules built in to engineering and corporate America that prevented entrepreneurial thinking and got in the way of somebody being able to rock the boat, if you will. Gotcha, sure. I also saw an opportunity to see people who were frightened to make their own decisions. Yeah. And that I had the opportunity to help them evaluate what the options were and therefore what decisions they might need to make to advance themselves or their career. And it's a lot of self-awareness. You start to recognize where you can help other people, where your talents lie. And then there is that foreshadowing of, I probably don't belong forever in corporate America. Right, but, right. but I did have wonderful experience. Um, I worked on a magazine and got to be an editor of that. I worked on uh, a number of things, but I would guess that the most important one was the launch of Good Morning America. Yes, that, what an amazing experience. It became the flagship show of the uh the network and and the leading uh show of that time segment the the morning show uh format so you'd love to hear about how that came to be uh there was it was clear that abc needed to get into the morning television game and at a certain point they were putting together a team of people and um literally going around the company saying, are you interested or can we tap you or, you know, would you want to be part of something like this? And I jumped. I I thought it was a really interesting opportunity to be in an entrepreneurial space within a corporation. Um, And, and what a blessing, you know, you're, you're deep pockets, but you're also making entrepreneurial choices and working with a team that's interested in doing something new and different. Yeah. And, and that was pretty exciting. Um, I also was pregnant at the time and it was an interesting mm-hmm. opportunity for me um, to realize that my, I was already used to a weird schedule time-wise. So when you work GMA, you know, you're in it four in the morning or five in the morning. Yeah. And even though you're on the management side, you're still on the set, you're in the studio. So uh, that, was a, that was a phenomenally wonderful time to do something new, to tap into different management opportunities, to see where what I did well meshed with other people. But I think it was probably the precursor to the work I do now. And I will tell you that one of the things I learned along the way or felt that I was absorbing as we went to air and develop this program was what it was that would hold an audience. Hmm. And I was not necessarily taking notes in a notebook, but there was a lot of learning and a lot of experience and a lot of recognizing what was happening within segments, four minute segments, five minute segments. How did we write them? How did we book them? How did we secure the talent? What did we look for? What made a good on-air presentation say, or a good presenter? What made a segment click? What made a segment die? I mean, so much that happened. And I stayed with GMA for nine years. Wow. Uh, that, that was also the opportunity when I brought my brother in as a field producer. And you, you could start to feel who you wanted to be in collaboration with and who set what bar for excellence. And the learning that got attached to that was quite spectacular. Yeah, um, so there was, there was nine years of the Good Morning America work. Um, and I would say the alliances and friendships that were built then still exist today. Wonderful. Well, that's a testament to you and, and who you are uh, cultivating well, those sweet? relationships. I think, I think you talk to 
the standard that we all experience together as a group. Yeah. And, yeah. and bought yes. into. Um, right. If everybody didn't buy in, that wouldn't have happened. So here's, here's the more personal side of this story, which, you know, you may feel you break out in goosebumps when I tell it. Um, at some point, um, ABC uh, ended up in a merger with Cap Cities. Right. And for those of you who know how this goes, I will tell it. And for those who don't, it'll be more interesting. You can only, as a network, have five owned and operated stations under your banner. Okay. Well, Cap Cities was an had its own five owned and operated, and ABC had its five owned and operated. So you put the right. two companies together, you now have too many. Yep. And there had to be a decision at the top when you put these two companies together as to where and which would be your most potent owned and operated. And therefore, you have to go to your other owned and operated stations and say, let's say you ran one of them. Hey, Asim, guess what? You're brilliant as a station manager, but you're no longer going to be in a separate owned and operated situation. And we're going to find something else, Asim, for you to do. But you can no longer be the owned and operated general manager of this particular station because of this merger that's going on. So it all went smoothly until they got to Buffalo. And in Buffalo, um, they had to approach the gentleman who was running the uh, Buffalo station. It was um, a Cap Cities owned and operated. And he had been uh, one of the very first employees under the Cap Cities umbrella. And they, instead of saying, hey, guess what? You can't run your station anymore. They said to him, um, this is a magnanimous, incredible, you can't believe it merger that he knew all the details. He said, what would you like to do as this merger takes place? You name it, you can have it because of your history, your longevity, your leadership capability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, I want to be senior vice president of Good Morning America. Um, Eventually, I want to run Good Morning America. Mm. Well, they said to him, well, that's nice, but Amy Copeland at this point is senior vice president of Good Morning America. And she's earned her stripes and she's worked her way up. And he said, not anymore. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, that was a stunning moment. Yeah, I'd say. Because you can march along in any corporate environment doing what you're doing and doing it brilliantly and doing it well and receiving um, the ratings you need to say that the work you're doing is, in fact, working. And you have 102 people that work with you for you and then you're told this isn't going to be your gig anymore Hmm. so the network executives came to me and said look we love you you're great you're doing amazing things but this isn't going to be your job anymore and we're bringing this person in and we'd like you to break him in and Hmm. teach him what he needs to know so i went to injury You know, this gets worse. So um, they held the first staff meeting where the head of the network introduced him and he said, hey, and um, then there was the week later staff meeting where he would actually be running it. And of course I showed up as I normally would. And as I got there, he said, why are you here? Mm. And I said, "Um, it's been my show and my baby for X number of years. And I wanted to make sure you had smooth transition and answer any questions and help you in any way. And he said, you're done now. Oh, gosh. So that was not an easy situation. Of course, a horrible treatment for you for all that you've done. For the Let's network. just say That's... inappropriate behavior. Um, yeah. And what you learn really quickly is how you can't take this personally, mm-hmm. how much um, you have to recognize where the sun and the moon and the stars align. Uh, you can't always judge what's going to happen. Um, you have to know where your friends are and who will support you. So I was um, called in by the head of HR who said, um, you're not, we're, we're just not getting rid of you. Just like stick around and talk to people, meet with people figure out what you should do next and let us know. All right. Uh, which was lovely, which was yeah. totally lovely. 
um, awkward. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> where where yeah. do I go each day when I come into this building? Right. Yeah. Um, but but here's where things unexpectedly align. Um, Cap Cities had decided that they wanted to experiment, and what they wanted to do was have the first ever direct marketing department within okay. the company. And in creating a direct marketing department, they were going to go around the company again and pluck people <laughs> who had different sets of experiences. And um, one of the people who was um, brought in to work on this uh, had been at the Wall Street Journal. And he and I became friendly in a group of just sort of business meetings where I was interviewing and investigating. And he said, look, I'm going to be assigned to this and maybe end up running this. Um, maybe this is where you should come next. You know, just you, maybe you found a new home. And so it ended up being a group of six or seven of us that in fact launched the first direct marketing division for Cap Cities ABC. Amazing. And that, wow. that became my new gig. Okay. Wow. Um, I imagine, I mean, were you excited about it or was it kind of a reluctance? I've got to take this because I do want to stay here. Well, it's interesting that you asked that question. Clearly what I've explained to you is how much interviewing around the company I was doing. Yeah. And that was the other aha, which yeah. I'm happy to share. Um, and hopefully you won't get embarrassed. Um, <laughs> I, um, I did a lot of interviewing before this direct marketing opportunity presented itself. And one of the interviews that I went to uh, was with uh, a gentleman who at the time was um, general counsel. And they assigned to the general counsel um, this new division called new media. Mm. And you and I now would call it very old media. It was really right. before social existed. And exactly. the company's thought was that they would launch a new media department and tap into many people within the company who could help ABC Cap Cities launch into new media. I don't think they even knew what new media meant right, right. right at the time. So I was one of the people obviously was lined up to interview because as you know, from my previous story, I didn't have a job. I had a place to go, but I didn't have a job. So this is post GMA and it is pre direct marketing. And I had a lovely, lovely interview. Um, and what it sort of became obvious in this interview, again, self-awareness, knowing what you know and do well. And it, it was sort of obvious to me, Asim, as we were going that he was building a team, but there would be many other layers uh, through which I would have to play. Anyway, the, let me skip to the end of the interview um, where he said, I really, really like who you are. I like the work you do. I hear things about you in this company and I'd like to address them. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And I said, Oh, that's so interesting. What is it right. that you hear about me? Yeah. And he said, I have to be truthful with you. I hear you're not a team player. Wow. So that was an aha moment. You asked me yes. earlier, what was the aha moment? Yes. Right. And I love to tell this story when I'm teaching and I'll tell you why it was an aha moment. I had two choices, but very quickly had to decide. Did I say, oh, come on, of course I'm a team player. I mean, how could you say that about me? I, you know you know how many different groups and teams and projects I've worked on, or did I dig down to a deeper truth and say what I really knew about myself? And I think you've probably figured out now that you know me and you've worked with me that I went to option two no, it's and, the latter. And, and said to and said to him, you know, I guess that's a very revealing question. And if I'm going to be super truthful, then I'll have to say you're right. I am not a team player. I'm really a team leader. And that's the role I should be in. And he Brilliant. said, I appreciate the candor. I appreciate your knowing yourself that well. I'm not going to hire you. I'm the team leader said, I need mm. team players. I don't need another team leader, but I'm sure there are going to be other places for you to use and exhibit that leadership quality. 
Um, those moments are going to come in our careers. Um, absolutely. And we absolutely need to hold on to who we are um, yeah. and what we do best. And, and it's sort of that spotlight on what I should be doing uh, and not hiding where my true talents lie. No, absolutely. Wow. And uh, kudos for being honest and, and raw about it. Um, I think so many people would have been too scared in that position and would have uh, gone with the first, first option. Yeah. Sure, I could have just been asked to leave. Um, yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. But, but I well, think well at a certain point, you just need to know who you are, what strength yeah. you bring, you know, what should you be doing to give back in the world and to be a productive uh, person and what's fulfilling. Yeah, what exactly. Do do that fulfills you on some deep level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we leave this uh, portion of uh, your career, um, you mentioned you were pregnant at the time GMA launch. Was that Brett, Adam or Taylor? <laughs> that was Taylor. Okay. All right. And then, um, you know, I just would love to hear for the audience, like uh, what, what do you, segment or, or guest were you most proud of from your GMA time? Well, I'm going to answer it in a way maybe you don't expect because I was not a line producer. Mm -hmm. um, I can't answer that question. If you okay. were to ask it to a line producer, they would surely, surely yeah, have yeah. an answer to that. My role was 30,000 feet up in the sense right. that I was um, constantly looking at the direction, the mission, the mojo, um, ways we approached uh, our integrity, what we produced, how we produced, uh, what we thought we brought to the party to best educate our audience. So I think the answer, really the better answer is that I was amazingly proud of the candor mm. um, and integrity in which we created our segments. And the fact nice. that while I was there, we surpassed um, all the other morning shows and had mm. the highest morning rating. Yeah, well, kudos. That's, that's definitely your, to your credit, um, the great work you did. And, well, the team. Uh, yeah. Well, you hired that team. <laughs> that was a team that you pulled together and cultivated. So as the leader, um, you get credit for that because- you Well, I, I think, I mean, that's a very beautiful thing to say, but I think in television, you have to be so incredibly aware of the collaboration. There, there yeah. is no way that any one person hires a team. Yeah. You all have to I put your you. heads together and make sure that you're, you're just sitting there with an amazing group of talented people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So how long were you uh, involved with the direct marketing side? Um, ABC altogether was 22 years. Okay. Um, GMA was nine years. So I'm going to say direct marketing was eight or nine as well. Um, okay. Those seem to be like the chunks. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and not that I would run out of steam, but you know, my inner sort of mojo would say, maybe it's time to start looking at something else. Sure, sure. And this is where you manage the title episodes. Episodes was under the direct marketing umbrella because it was a direct marketing project. Right. And we created um, a magazine for all intents and purposes that covered the real life journeys and stories of the talent that was featured on our daytime programs. So whereas Soap Opera Digest at the time was um, looking at the characters within the shows, we looked at the actors and their real lives and were able to create this amazing magazine which entertained our viewers and connected them to the network. That was the goal, was to have a marketing vehicle that would enhance the presence within the home would solidify advertising, would make an on-air ad resonate maybe with a coupon within that magazine. So there was a way to tie together the efforts of the sales department as an on-air vehicle to a print mechanism that ended up in my viewer's home. Nice. And it became a very, very strong vehicle for us. And the magazine then became 
um, really, I think, well accepted as a uh, women's magazine, almost separate and apart from its connection to the network, because mm. we were delivering amazing uh, content and stories yes. and interesting information. Uh, just yeah. so happened that it tied to daytime television at ABC. Gotcha. Okay, great. Amy, you shared with us brilliantly how some of your personality traits, some of your experience in corporate uh, America, where you realized you weren't a corporate baby, and some of these other instances were really laying down, down the groundwork for you to make this entrepreneurial jump. Yeah. So tell us <laughs> about that point and, and that, uh, that decision. Um, when we were involved in the entire direct marketing process, uh, again, a management shift at the top. Mm. And it became pretty obvious that that vehicle as a marketing tool um, was not going to be sustainable. And new management team said, nice, cute, love it, but nah, not so much. We're not going to stay with it. So everybody that was connected to it, and there were seven of us, were told that we were gonna be shutting down. Oh. And my decision as um, a leader in that group was, and I went to HR with this proposal, I'm gonna request that you hold on to me. We will shut it down, but I wanna make sure because of the devotion and dedication and commitment of these seven people, that I help all seven people find a full-time job and then you can let me go. Wow, nice. And the network bought into that. Uh, okay. I have to say at the time, Bill Wilkinson, who was head of HR, was just a brilliant, brilliant man who got it. He instantly got yeah. it and, and made such incredibly wise decisions um, and became a really good friend. And so that's what happened. Um, they extended me for a year. And I worked really hard to make sure all of my people got relocated. And at the end of that year, um, as difficult as it was, because I almost felt like I was leaving my family of 20 yeah. some odd years, um, I went out on my own. And that's when I formed Bedlam Productions and decided that um, this was probably the next, although difficult, step for me along the way. And yeah. I'll recount for you and anybody that might take this to heart, a conversation uh, with the CEO, uh, COO, sorry, um, Dan Burke at, Dan Burke, right. at the time. And, and Dan said to me, look, um, you have such entrepreneurial spirit that if I had all people with that much entrepreneurial spirit, I couldn't run this company. Mm. So it really is time for you to go. He said, you have an imprint to create in the world. You have greater things to do and people to influence. And I'm here for you. So if you need help or guidance or referrals, whatever it is, but um, I'm kicking you out of corporate America right. for all intents and purposes. Go be the entrepreneur you're meant to be. Right. Wow. Well, and I appreciate your high. Yeah, well, I appreciate you highlighting the emotional challenge of that, leaving your family behind. I mean, 22 years. It was really long. tough. Yeah. I, I see one of the cute things was, so I had my own little office and I um, was so in the habit of putting all my mail in a little tray. And at the end of the day, the mail was still in the tray. No one had come <laughs> around to pick it up. <laughs> um, and, wow. and there was no coffee cart at four o'clock in the afternoon mm. and all the things you get very right. used to. Um, but the truth is, it was, when I look back, the smartest thing that could have happened for me career-wise and, and um, uh, in terms of leadership and, and capability, um, there just became many, many important opportunities and places where I could be way more influential and affect other people's lives yeah. uh, in a very positive way. No, absolutely. Uh, share with us, Amy, the inspiration behind the name Bedlam. Um, it is a silly but wonderful story. Um, a lot of people were leaving um, the network to do other things, needless to say, after X amount of time, you move on. And everybody had a very um, predictable name. So things that sounded like you couldn't distinguish them. And there was something in me that said, okay, no matter what you are as a brand, you need to be memorable. You need to resonate. And 
here it is, as, as cute as it may be, I was with my son and we were in the park and I kept saying to him, you know, we, we need to sit down with a thesaurus and I'll teach you how to use a thesaurus, which at the time I lived with. Um, and we're gonna find a name that sort of talks to what I wanna do and the kind of business. Mm. And um, somebody was in the park with a dog named Bedlam. And they were yelling, Bedlam, come here, Bedlam, Bedlam, and throwing Frisbee. And um, Taylor looked at me, and I looked at Taylor, and I said, you know, maybe it's Bedlam. Maybe that's wow. that's where we are. It, this is, right. uh, and, and that became the name. It was a very, Amazing. very unplanned organic experience. So, yeah. yes. Um, that's beautiful. Well, and of course, what came to mind is a reference to the psychiatric hospital that's famous for the, having that you know, name. It has come up. It clearly has come <laughs> up. Um, and I know all the segments that Geraldo Rivera used to do at, at, at that hospital. Um, but we, we say to people that it's organized Bedlam, and it is yeah. Bedlam Productions. And it is, I often say to people, uh, an organized but fun state of mind. And interestingly, and this is a gender comment again, it's a name that plays on either side. So mm. men are comfortable with it. Women are comfortable with it. There are certain names uh, that other people have chosen that have bias attached to them and, and Bedlam yeah. Productions does not. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And I, I love that story. And it, it also ties into your, your love of dogs, um, which I know has been a lifelong passion. And we're gonna bring that up in just a, a short sure. bit because it's an important part of how you give back. Um, Bedlam Productions, uh, your focus is on uh, producing and, and coaching and you have a lot of corporate clients and individual clients, um, uh, but I should let you use your words to describe it. Yeah, I would say that um, the best way to talk about Bedlam Productions is that we are a production company, but what mm -hmm. I produce is widespread. And it's yeah. part of how I talk about the value we bring. Um, it started out with a narrow cast. We were literally producing uh, think tanks and summits for senior executives. And so that was the most literal form of the word producing. But as we were doing those, uh, it became really obvious that a lot of people didn't know how to speak about who they were and what they were and what their mojo was as a leader. And people would say to me, look, I know you produce events, but would you consider producing me? Like, would you help me um, figure out what I want to say and how should I say it? And how do I talk to my sales team? And how might I talk to the board? And how might I express um, my core messaging? And it, and it started to tilt the same after, um, after a while, I could see that I was a 50-50 deal. 50% of my time was actually producing what I'll call the summits, the leadership summits. But the other 50% was producing the executives who were going to speak. Right. And I Wonderful. like to say that I am your producer, Asim, not your yes. coach. Because uh, coach okay. comes oh. with a different expectation. And right. I don't want to count how many push-ups you do. I'm not your coach. <laughs> um, what I really want to do yeah. is look at who are you, yeah. what's your brand, what's your messaging, what do you need to convey, how do you make sure that message resonates, how do you hold your audience, and realize that it all amazingly spirals back to the work in television and at GMA, and how when you come on air and you only have four minutes, you have to captivate your audience right. within those four minutes. Right. And I like to say that that's what I teach people how to do. And it's what yeah. I'm actually hired now to do. Uh, right. A lot of the individual and independent producing has subsided because of the world we're in right now. Sure. And much more of the work uh, is with senior executives and teams and people that want to say, how do I either on Zoom or in person in certain instances, uh, how do I master the art of being concise? Mm. How do I deliver my message so it resonates? Yeah, I do this for yeah. people who have to lead by phone, people who have to lead by Zoom, people who have to lead in person, people who have to go to camera, people yeah. who have to be in a TV studio. It almost doesn't matter. My point of view is 
I need you to be a phenomenal one man or one woman show. I need you to be sure you can get a standing ovation. And I need you to understand what are those sneaky little, I know them because I'm a producer tactics that allow you to be brilliant in front of your audience and yeah. have people remember who you are and what you said. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I mean, you have a marquee list of clients, both on the corporate and on the uh, individual side. And it feels like all those people you just described who have to engage in those activities, those would be your ideal clients. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I love the fact that I don't actively market. Um, mm. Somebody who works with me will say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop. C can I introduce you to someone who really needs you? Um, I work recently with a CEO of a um, large athletic company, uh, athletic wear, let's call it athleisure. And mm, she said to right. me, really my dream is to put you in my suitcase and take you with me to absolutely <laughs> every presentation that I'm gonna make. That's and fantastic. what emerged from that, which was so interesting is she said, look, I have brilliant people in PR and I have smart people making my slides and I know what I wanna say but no one's pulling all that together the way you do. Oh, and I think it comes from that discipline of making sure that when you go onto TV, into a segment, into a, uh, an event, that you have the discipline, the integrity, and the vision to understand what your audience is desperate to know and how to deliver that to them in a way that they can remember it and use it. Yeah, and absolutely. not be confounded by too much information. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that there are audience members listening who have all those needs or performing all those functions. And so I uh, encourage them to, to seek you out. Oh, and, that's so uh, we'll wonderful. Have... I, I would certainly love to do more of the work I do with more people. And um, that's very kind of you. Well, you're brilliant at it. So um, by all means, if it, people should avail themselves of that benefit. Um, I want well, to chat a little bit. you have to tell them how to find me. I leave that job to you. Perfect. It's in good hands. <laughs> I'll also try and control the mob that I feel is going to come out. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. Let let them come over the fence. <laughs> Perfect. That's brilliant. Um, I want to chat a little bit about this book that you wrote. Um, I didn't see it coming. I uh, thought it was a phenomenal book, um, highlights uh, a lot of your experiences, and you give such great advice in there. And um, I just, you know, how you talked about Bill Wilkinson, and you praised him in this uh, interview, and you talked about how it was important to cultivate a relationship with people in various departments, including HR over the years. And so I think that was a key reason why he was able to be uh, an ally and, and, and have helped you at that time. Uh, so that was brilliant. Uh, you know, the first chapter, you say, develop an exit strategy. Uh, just you know, as you we were... I'm gonna jump in and tell you how much resistance we got to opening the book that way. Wow, I'm surprised. Um, yeah, I think everyone wanted the exit strategy to be the end of the book. And hmm. I believe that you need one going in the door, so why shouldn't it start your book? Exactly. Um, yeah. I did this with two other brilliant women and we all found that at a particular point in our career, um, we, we in fact did see it coming, but everybody likes to say, I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Um, in fact, we went to one publisher and they said, well, we think the book should be called, you can see it coming. And I said, who's going to buy a book like that? I mean, <laughs> that's not what we say. We say, right. oh my goodness, I didn't see it coming. Yeah. The truth yeah. is we do. And I think in this book, we had the opportunity to tap into the reality of that and how if you recognize that um, there are signs everywhere and then actually you see things every day and on so many levels that you can in fact be a strong leader and you yeah. can lead with a lot more security and courage, never be looking behind your back, never think that you have lost control of what's going on. So there's a lot of lessons we put in. We did it as a yeah. fast read, um, but our, our goal was to tell real stories, but changed all the names and changed the companies right. because we didn't want anybody to say, ouch, that's me. 
but I think we have revealed in many ways uh, all the important things people need to know to be strong leaders and to really not ever say, hey, I didn't see it coming. Uh, one of the things that allowed the book to sort of jump and work was that when we actually published, uh, it was at a time when Don Imus was on radio and said something pretty much inappropriate about women basketball players and he got dismissed mm. immediately. And at the time, uh, I was really good friends with one of the gals who was doing Fox Morning TV. And she called me and she said, this could not really have come at a better time. Bad for him, but good for you. Uh, I'd like you to come on and do a segment about why this happened. Oh, and uh, it worked. It was right thing, right yeah. time. And yeah. it allowed the book to get in many people's hands. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, what I love about the book is it's not just talking about how this happens, but you give concrete strategies and tools for people to deploy in their career. The other thing is that it covers so many different industries, uh, which is really great. And I identified the name of the, the character in the book is Greg Densmore, because I, I have an investment banking background. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I just saw one of my bosses and what this guy did and sort of being sent to London. Could have been your boss, Asim. I'm <laughs> not giving away any secrets. Um, we try to go into many different industries. And at the end of each chapter, it's sort of like, hey, you know, don't forget these things. Yeah. Uh, but they were all real life stories of things that we knew could have changed the landscape and things that we know people even right now can think differently, do differently, say differently um, to protect their butt. Uh, that's yeah. sort of oh. the bottom line and to be way, way more courageous. Uh, yeah. I think too yeah. many of us uh, get stuck with things. And if we, uh, like the people would say, oh, if I only knew that in advance and my thought was to right. read the book, you'll certainly, <laughs> certainly know it in advance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm dealing with a company just today, just today, uh, early this morning, and they were talking to me about this new leader, and he's been in the company for nine months, and now all of a sudden, all his people are showing up. And I said, oh, he's bringing in his sacred cows. And they said, oh, my God, how did you know that? And I thought, well, hey, dude, <laughs> I read the book. <laughs> That's hilarious. Wow. Oh, Amy, um, you were such a multifaceted uh, Renaissance woman, just so skilled oh, in so many things that you do and all that you touch. I mean, an amazing producer, amazing entrepreneur, amazing businesswoman, uh, amazing friend, amazing writer. Uh, and you also, with all of this, you find time to, to give back and you volunteer your time significantly. Uh, and in particular, uh, a pet project of yours, I suppose that was a pun, a pet project of yours is yes, Dog Rescue. Very good. <laughs> Tell, I mean, and I know it's been hard for you because you haven't been able to engage in this during the pandemic, but I would just love for the audience to hear what is close to your heart. Yeah, the love is is dog rescue. Um, I uh, have four rescue dogs that live with me, mm, and I was pre-pandemic uh, every other month going to the uh, southeast corner of Puerto Rico to help rescue uh, in the towns off the beaches, and then work with um, Animal Lighthouse Rescue in New York to find foster homes and eventually what we called forever homes. Uh, there are clearly many organizations that are doing brilliant work in this arena. I just was proud to be working with them. And uh, one of the things that I decided to do as a project to help raise money was to uh, pair up with a gal who's a dear friend, uh, Scarlet Dog Photography. And we went around and uh, we took pictures of 30 different families that had done the rescue and taken these dogs in their homes and we created a book called Home, Where All Dogs Deserve to Be. And um, it, was a, it was a brilliant way with the help of East End Press to create this book, Horizon, uh, the Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation did an underwriting of this entire project for us. And we got the book out. It's in fact on the Animal Lighthouse Rescue site. And we covered the stories of these 30 families and these amazing dogs that not only got saved, but what's brilliant about dog rescue is that the dog saves you and your family as well. Oh, 
and Beautifully um, put. At, at some point I will just jump back in. Yeah, of course. So uh, southeastern Puerto Rico, that's close to Ponce, I believe. Um, you know, I seem I, I, I'm not a great map girl. It was the southeast corner <laughs> and the shelter um, um, is El Faro um, and okay. it is up in the hills. And yeah. we would, you know, climb up a road that went to nowhere and yeah. uh, work in the shelter with the amazing doctors and, and vet techs and nurses. And then um, I would bring dogs up right on my lap on Delta Airlines. Oh, and amazing. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was an amazing experience. And now a lot of them are, are flown up or, or brought up uh, via van and uh, foster families are lined up. And then the forever homes are found through the network. So alrcares.org, um, that's, that's the actual group. Um, it, it's amazing work. You know, you, you really do feel that it's a mutual save. You're mm. saving the dog, but the family is saved at the same time. That's so beautiful. I can see why you do it. Yeah, it, it um, just feels very special. Yeah. Amy, this has been such an exquisite conversation. I can't Oh, I've enjoyed you. talking with you so, so much. I'm going to ask a favor, a little live producing from you. Um, was there a question I missed? Was there something I should have asked that uh, to give you an opportunity to share something that I didn't give you a chance to? I, I don't think so. I feel that we have um, run a great um, race or marathon or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> and, and I certainly hope that um, some of the stories will resonate and that um, I have an opportunity to meet more of your audience. No, that'd be lovely. They will gain a lot from it as in interacting with you as they will have gained from listening to this uh, experience, life experiences that you've shared and you've shared your journey with us. So uh, full of gratitude. Thank you again, Amy. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for asking me to do this.